Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you found the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Well, welcome back to The Commons. I'm your host, Brian Phillips, here for another conversation about school life and leadership with me is Keith McCurdy. Uh, Keith, thanks for joining me again. Oh, you're welcome. Thanks for having me again. Now, Keith, tell us a little bit about yourself. For those uh, for those who have not listened to previous Commons episodes uh, where I've interviewed Keith, uh, remind us, who are you and what do you do? <laughs> <laughs> well, um, gosh, uh, I'm in the mental health profession. I've been in that profession for about 30 years, uh, worked with uh, tens of thousands of uh, patients and families. Uh, I also have uh, served on the board of a Christian classical school for eight years. For the last six years, I was board chair. Actually, I just rolled off. So it's uh, the first time in about eight years that I haven't been serving on a school board. Um, have a family, have two kids, have a daughter that's a senior in college, a son that's a senior in high school. Both have uh, gone through a Christian classical school, Faith Christian here in Roanoke. Uh, my wife and I are going on 25 years of marriage. Uh, we're, uh, you know, we're, we like to get outdoors and do a lot of fun things. Um, and I love uh, going around and, and speaking to schools. I do a lot of that nationally and, and taking time out to, to do podcasts. Oh. I, you know, I've been on, with, been on with you a few times and a few other folks. Yeah. I love it. Yeah, that's wonderful. We, we really appreciate you taking time to join us again. Um, we've recorded a couple of podcasts together in the past, and at least mm-hmm. one of those episodes uh, was a discussion of how to raise sturdy children. And today's topic's related to that. We're going to discuss the importance of struggle uh, and the power of mm. struggle. So you talk with a lot of families and schools about uh, the value of struggle. So let's let's just start there. Why is struggle so valuable for our children and for ourselves? You know, I think that's a great question. It, it was so funny. I was speaking to a group of folks um, just two days ago, parents, and one of them asked the question, she said, are we still in the age of helicopter parents? And I said, no, we've parked the helicopters and we've jumped in the snow plows <laughs> and, and we are clearing the path for our children. So they experience no amount of difficulty or struggle at all. And I, it reminded me of a, a phrase I heard years ago. 
it's not about preparing the road for the child. It's about preparing the child for the road. You know, and that's really what struggle does. It begins to prepare our children to live in a world that's broken, to live in a world that has rigors, uh, to live in a world that at times is not, um, you know, not smooth. And, and I, I really break it into three categories when I talk to teachers and the parents. I say, you know, struggle gives us perspective. It gives us a perspective of life that nothing else can. And it gives us pr- perspective on three key categories. You know, the first is ourselves. When we engage in struggle, and actually, I'll use an example. My son is an Eagle Scout, and so I'll use an Eagle project. Some of you Mm -hmm. may be aware of, you know, big Eagle projects that that are hard to do. Most of them are hard to do. And, you know, when an Eagle Scout does a project, they have to really work hard. And one of the things that I hear consistently after they have finished it is, man, I didn't know I was capable of that. I didn't know that I could handle all of that. I, it challenged me to do things I've never done. It challenged me to manage things I've never thought about. And so the first thing struggle does is it really gives us a perspective of ourselves that we're made capable. Mm-hmm. We are actually made capable. You know, the second perspective that it, it, it kind of clarifies for us is the nature of the world around us. I, uh, when I go around, I speak to upper school students a lot and we talk about high school drama and, uh, and we talk about a conversation about most of the things that we get upset about, are they really a big deal or have we just convinced ourselves they are? And when we allow ourselves to go through real struggle, all of a sudden losing our cell phone, losing our keys, uh, running a few minutes late for a meeting is really not a big deal. And we realize that we realize that, that the world itself is not necessarily full of horrible things. It may be difficult at times, it may be stressful at times, but it reshapes that perspective that most things in life are really not as bad as we have taken them today. You know, I think back, I often tell the story of a guy named Joe who lives, and I, I, and I will not get into the whole story, who, who used to spend summers with his grandparents and going out and plowing in the fields all day long and all the different things they had to deal with. You know. Uh, plowshares breaking and they had to go to the blacksmith to get it fixed and, and plowing into the night when it was a full moon. And he remembers his granddad, you know, commenting many times, uh, you know, that was a really good day, wasn't it? <laughs> and Joe was thinking, that was not my perspective initially, but I realized, you know, our day is less about what occurs in it hmm. and a lot more about how we respond to it. And, right. and, and so struggle gives us that perspective about the broader world around us. And then the third thing, struggle really gives us perspective about is the value of others. You know, and I'll go back to, uh, you know, an Eagle Scout project as an example. Uh, My son had a bunch of his buddies that were all working towards that rank at the same time. And so they all needed one another's help to, to do these projects. And when they got done, not only did they realize, wow, I did something I didn't think I could do, but I couldn't have done it without them. I could not have done it without their help. And so struggle teaches us value of others and really the importance of community, the importance of having those around us on the journey together. And so when we eliminate that struggle, we eliminate the ability f- for that perspective to be informed. Right. Right. That's, um, th- that's so true. I mean, we, I, I think it was Karen Kern. I heard recently talk about, um, the helicopter parent, um, tendency, I guess you'd say. And now, uh, I think the illustration she used was not a not a snowplow, but a lawnmower. You know, just going yeah. in front of our <laughs> going in front of our children and mowing down anything that might uh, 
keep their path from being smooth and easy. Um, and we all resist struggle. Um, so let's, let's talk about this, uh, as it relates to, um, teachers and then, then we'll talk a little bit about parents, uh, later, but, but we all resist struggle perhaps instinctively, uh, when it comes to our own lives, but, but teachers, we don't like seeing our students struggle. Um, at least, uh, I think our culture pulls us that way, you know, the right. demands and and sometimes even the, um, the feedback that we get, you know, it's resisting struggle in the classroom. So what do teachers need sure. to know and, and what do we need to do better to prepare our students to face challenges and struggles? You know, I think that's a great question because teachers have several voices <clears throat> coming at them about, right. you know, their, their students not struggling. You know, one voice they have is culture who, uh, as we've talked on previous podcasts, has really sent the message that our job is to keep our kids happy and right. comfortable all the time. But then the other, the other voice they have is parents. And, you know, parents that will call when Johnny has Latin to do over the weekend mm-hmm. uh, and just really wondering, you know, what are you doing? Because now my child is upset and they're home with me. And I don't want to have to deal <laughs> with that. And as if all schooling should be done only at school. Uh, and so I think teachers have a lot of pressures, a lot of voices, and they also have administration pressures of, uh, we want to keep parents happy, uh, in, in a sense. Yeah. And so I think, I think it's a wonderful question. And I, you know, I, when I go around and talk to teachers, I suggest building a language around struggle, building a message around the idea that healthy struggle is a good thing. And, and some of the recommendations I give teachers, you know, one is, you know, in the classroom, have realistic expectations. You know, the realistic expectations is we're not going to change the children or the families they come from, uh, but we we get to speak into it a little bit. We have to understand a good way to do that. And the first, I think, is develop uh, or provide development, developmentally appropriate challenges in the classroom. And when I say developmentally appropriate, um, make sure we're defining the word rigor in a healthy way. You know, rigor, uh, as one uh, one student told me one time, sometimes rigor is like a hammer to the forehead. And I'm not sure that's the best application of rigor. Uh, a good friend of mine said, you know, why, why do our children need to read, you know, 10 books uh, in this one class this year? Why don't they read five really well? Why don't mm. they read five and dig into them? So I think finding that balance for developmentally where those students are and saying, gosh, it's not just about the, the mass quantity that we want them to struggle with. We want them to struggle with the actual experience of it. Uh, the same friend of mine one time said, you know, it's not about seeing how many wells we can dig. It's like, let's dig a few, but really deep and wide and spend some time in them. Right. And so I think, I think balancing that idea of rigor in the classroom is extremely valuable, but it's still going to be difficult. And, and when that occurs, you know, that's when parents call. Mm-hmm. And what I suggest to teachers is this, I say, you know, we, if you think back three, four generations, think about who the seats of generational wisdom used to be for parents. You know, when parents struggled, they would either go to their parents or grandparents uh, because they've walked the path before them. They would go to their, their pastors uh, because they were they had insight into how God said we're to raise our children. But they also went to their children's teachers because teachers, I say this to teachers all the time, you know, you used to be a seat of wisdom in the world of parenting and children. And they all laugh <laughs> because today they feel like they're the complaint department at the DMV. And, oh and so what I tell teachers is, look, if, if you're providing challenge in your classroom, well-balanced challenge, uh, you are going to get phone calls from your parents. 
And so when the parents call, instead of being defensive or excusing or, or, or things like that, this is where we really need to lean in. And we need to lean in and, and really share some truth and say, oh my goodness, thank you for calling. You know, thank you for calling because let me tell you what we know. We know that healthy struggle is the engine to growth and maturity in the life of your child. Mm-hmm. And we're absolutely committed to that because we know that is the best for your child's development. And then quite frankly, Johnny has Latin because he didn't get it finished this week. Do you have any other questions? <laughs> and the funny thing is I've shared this over the last several years, examples like this with teachers. And I've gotten emails back and forth at times from teachers saying it's amazing because they, they realize they're not taking the ownership of the role they have in the life of the, the children they teach. Mm-hmm. And when they begin to do that a little differently in that way, it's amazing that parents begin to see them in a different light as well. Right. And then the other thing I tell folks, you know, I, I tell teachers, create a culture around the idea of struggle. I said this several years ago, and then I got an email from a teacher, and I, and I hate to say it, but I've stolen this ever since, the, ever since then. Uh, this teacher said at the beginning of the year, I think she saw me some, somewhere at a conference in the summer. She wrote, she was a grammar school teacher. She wrote across the top of her board, um, we're going to do some hard things this year. And, and she, she understood, we talked in, in a conference about shaping identity, family identity. And she said, you know, I need a classroom identity and I need a classroom identity around the idea that struggle is good and we ought to feel good about it. And so she wrote that across her board and she said, the kids were pretty pumped up. They were like, yeah, we're going to do some hard things. And so all of a sudden what she did by just giving a little bit of an identity statement to her classroom, she changed the entire narrative around doing something that's a little difficult. Right. And, and so instead of what society has said, that anything uncomfortable or difficult is automatically bad, she twisted it around to where, it, gosh, difficult things are good, which that's really what we know. Because without struggle, we cannot grow. And so I think we, we have to think about that too. You know, How can we establish a different conversation in the classroom, in the school about struggle? And another great way to do that, and this will sound like I'm promoting myself, but we need to have other voices. You know, sometimes we are in such a mix with parents that it's hard for us to be the, the voice about saying your child needs to struggle and you need to let them and cause it sometimes. Mm-hmm. And so it helps to have other voices come in and be able to do that. Uh, you know, it's amazing to me. I can, I can speak to uh, faculty administration and then in the evening speak to, to parents at a parent forum. And I can tell parents all this stuff that really gets up in their grill a little bit. If teachers told them that, they would be irate. But they laugh when I tell them, but they start to get it. They realize they're making yeah. the, the road too easy for their kids. Isn't it interesting, too, that that's, that's the sort of behavior that we complain about when we see our children do it? You know, a, a mom or dad tells their child something, um, you know, you really should, you need to make your bed every morning. And, oh, yeah. and the child may grumble when they um, hear it. Oh, my parents, gosh. But then when they hear their favorite uncle or someone else that they admire, you know, say the same thing. And that then suddenly it's a good idea. And parents, we complain right. about that. But then, but then I have seen that done where we do the same thing to, Absolutely. to teachers or other uh, authorities in our, in our child's lives. Um, we, we sort of are hesitant to take their advice because familiarity breeds contempt, right? And then an outside Absolutely. voice comes in or a book you read or a podcast you listen to, yeah. right? You hear that That's same right. advice hopefully, and then, right. yeah, hopefully. And then suddenly it's a good idea. Um, but yeah. we, that, that is, um, it's kind of external to our discussion today, I, I guess in the bigger sense, sure. but, but it's so true, isn't it? We, we need to be willing to hear, yeah. 
hear wisdom wherever it is found. Um, yeah, we, 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 we have a hard time. It's almost as if we categorize everybody that we already know in our life. Right. And we make decisions early on whether or not they have any wisdom for us or not. When in reality, all of us at any point can have wisdom. Yeah. And, and we've got to be open to that. You know, I, I challenge uh, parents a lot. I say, look, you know, think back to, to just in Genesis, you know, a very simple idea that God gives us that, you know, be in relationship with him, be in relationship with one another in marriage. And then here's everything I've given you. Learn all about it. Learn how to deal with it and take good care of it. And then raise someone else up to replace you. If, if we grab that idea, all of a sudden we realize, wait a minute, that isn't going to be easy. <laughs> That's going to be a struggle. That changes our perspective that we want to learn from others that are in the struggle. And that all of a sudden means everyone around us can be a source for that information. Mm-hmm. Okay. But we do, we do miss that. Right, yeah. right. So, so teachers, we need to really pay attention to our classroom culture. What are the expectations that we're setting? Are we, are we setting up a classroom culture to where our students will expect and embrace struggle and then embrace your role as a teacher, embrace your role as a, as a source of, of wisdom, um, on behalf of your students. So now in a school setting, there can sometimes be a disparity between the expectations of teachers and the expectations of parents. Um, Absolutely. You, you may have parents who think, Oh, it's too hard. And then you're going to have some parents and depending on the school um, who this is not hard enough. You know, I want my, (laughs) I want my child to work harder. Right. right? So, um, so teachers and parents sometimes aren't envisioning the same amount of work, the same amount of effort required of the students. Uh, Additionally, it seems that there are some parents, um, as as I mentioned, want their children to be successful. And I I'm using air quotes here that no one listening to a podcast can see, but they want their child to be successful, but without (laughs) having to struggle. So what let's talk to parents now. What do parents need to know about the value of struggle for their children? And yeah, yeah, go ahead. Yeah. I think it's a great question. You know, in in air quotes, uh, what I ask groups of parents all the time at the beginning of a, of a talk. And I I say, this is the question to be thinking about as we talk tonight, would you rather have a child that's sturdy and capable or a child that's happy and successful? Mm. And, and, and that really frames it because the two really go in two different directions. If that's your target, Mm -hmm. because the way we target happy and successful today is not through struggle. It's by clearing the path. But if we really target, uh, sturdy and capable, then our children, you know what? They, they experience more happiness through life. They experience more peace through life, more joy through life. And, and parents really struggle with that. You know, what I tell parents is this, um, Unless we introduce struggle into the lives of our children, they will be run by their emotions because struggle is the part that redirects that. You know, unfortunately, in the mental health world, we, we try to convince parents all the time that their children have uh, any number of emotional disorders. And what I tell parents is really that's a very small percentage, uh, even though we overdiagnose, but all of our children are emotionally disordered, meaning we, we pursue a feeling state or we use our feelings as the number one navigator of life. Mm-hmm. And so what a parent has to understand, and, I, and a, a story I've told before, and I may have shared this with you or, or an analogy I use, you know, imagine you, uh, you go to New York City and the, the worst crime place in New York City is South Bronx. And next thing you know, you're walking through an alley in South Bronx and a bunch of people run in after you. How would you feel? 
but you feel scared. So now imagine you're at home in bed and you dream that scenario. How would you feel in the dream? Everyone says, I'm scared. Right. Okay. Now imagine you're at a movie theater and something on the screen jumps and for a split second, you jump. And that split second, how did you feel? Well, you felt fright. And so I asked parents, I say, so in that first example, in New York City, in South Bronx, in the alley, are you in danger? And they all say, yes, of course. All right. When you're in bed sleeping, in the dream, are you in danger in the dream? Well, absolutely not. Are you in danger? Can anything hurt you when you're at a scary movie? And the answer, of course, is no. Our feelings, our emotions cannot tell the difference between fantasy and reality. Hmm. Our feelings do not discern truth. So if we target a feeling state as a goal for our children or teach our children that how you feel is your navigation for life, we're giving them a broken compass. Mm -hmm. And the only way to get that out of the top spot is through struggle. And I'll give you an example. A, a little boy, well, it's very common, a little boy I've worked with, worked with years ago, and the mom and dad wanted to, to try to get him to take a little better ownership of some things. And instead of nagging him endlessly, which, which is what they were doing, um, they finally just said, look, here's the deal. Other than eating and going to school, everything's off the table until you get your room picked up. All of a sudden, this kid was struggling, <laughs> struggling <laughs> mightily. It was one of the first times the parents had really held such a firm line. I think he was eight years old. Mm -hmm. And, um, and he, the problem became his. It was no longer theirs. And they allowed him to struggle at some point because they held the line regardless this child and virtually every child will begin to, to motivate and do some things differently. But for him to do that, think about what had to happen in him. What had to happen in him was it no longer mattered whether he wanted to do it or not. It no longer mattered how he felt about it because he had made the decision, I need to go on and do it. So he had began the process of getting the emotions out of the lead spot in his life. And this is what we see when we look back several generations, you know, the, the, the historical record we have, the, the familial record through our families we have of growing up, that as soon as you demonstrated a functional ability, we gave you a reason to use it. As soon as you could mm -hmm. grab things, you carried wood. As soon as you were tall enough to hitch up a horse, you helped hitch up the horse team. Those children that grew up then, if you interviewed them as adults, said, we really didn't think about whether we wanted to do it or not. It was just part of who we were. Right. And so they had, they had, they had very early in life, because struggle was introduced to them early in life, they had already flipped the script around that my emotions don't tell the tale for the day. It's my responsibilities or, or my job or my ownership or my identity. And so when I talk to parents, I say, you know, what you've got to understand is we've got to be introducing struggle back into the lives of our children. And one example I give to parents or the question I give them is this. I say, think right now in your home, you know, what, what do you do for the functioning and upkeep of your home? that your child, unless they're limited by uh, development or, or physical strength, what can they not do? And in the last five years, I've yet to have a parent raise their hand and give me something practical other than those two limitations that their children can't do. And I said, well, there, th there's your starting point right there. Mm -hmm. Your starting point right there for introducing struggle into the lives of your children is start giving them ownership of life. And I reference, and they say, oh, you're just saying give them chores. And I say, absolutely. And I reference uh, a famous study that's still ongoing, the Harvard Grant study, uh, that studies uh, baby boomers. And now baby boomers are going into retirement. And about two years ago, they, they spit out some information that they looked at uh, life satisfaction. You know, baby boomers looking back at life to say, gosh, how was it? You know, what, what was my um, life satisfaction? 
And what they found are the ones in retirement that had the highest rated life satisfaction as children had chores. And the younger they were when they had them, the higher they rated life satisfaction. So there is something that, that we can discern from that, that struggle, ownership of burden early in life helps us in the maturity process. Right. And that's the message I try to get a hold of, across to parents. And it's not about let them struggle by pounding on them. We don't have to do that. It's let them struggle by starting to give them ownership of life around them. And that's very different. And, you know, one of the really interesting things, or one of the things that stood out about what you said was when you teach your children that it's not about how you feel about it. Um, you know, your emotions don't rule the day. Right. The connection you made between that and forming their identity I think it's right. really, really important because one of the yeah. things that I've noticed, I, I've taught middle school students, I've taught high school students, I've taught college students, and I've taught adults who are coming back to college. But mm -hmm. one of the things that I've noticed across all of those ages is that the ones who have the greatest difficulty in doing the hard work, in doing things that they don't feel like doing, those are the ones that you will see going through identity struggles through, you know, phase after phase after phase, um, you know, kind of floating back and forth, not really knowing who they are, what they want to do, who they're going to be. Um, I really think that struggle forms in you a, a greater understanding of who you actually are and what you're capable of. And I think a lot of the identity struggle that we see in our culture today is probably rooted in that inability to struggle, that inability oh, I, to do hard things. I would completely agree. Let me, let me give you an example of that. There are, there are three key questions. I think these are the most core questions to identity formation that our children struggle with today. Many adults struggle with today. Pretty much all the millennials that I've met, not all, but the majority struggle with. And these are questions that three generations ago and before we never even asked, they got answered by the time we were 10 years old naturally. Think about, so I'll give you a, a quick way to think about it. Go back about three generations, four generations to the 1800s. And you think about just the average 13-year-old male. I'll describe him to you. What we know from historical record, he, uh, he already knew how to plant, plow, harvest, hunt, fish, preserve game, preserve food, uh, had already helped build multiple homes in his community by the age of 10 and 12 because he was relied on. So here are the three questions and compare that individual from the 1800s to a typical 12, 13-year-old today, and think about how they would answer them. The first is, am I valuable? Mm. We think about that kid from the 1800s. Well, absolutely, he knew he was valuable. He was relied upon. Mm -hmm. Second question, am I capable? Well, yeah, he knew he was capable because he had ownership and responsibility of a lot of life. And then the third is, do I fit or belong to something bigger than myself? And he absolutely knew he was part of a community, a thriving community, both a community of family and a broader community. You look at the, a child today, and it's exactly what you said. When we don't go through struggle, how do we answer those questions? Am I valuable? I really don't know. I'm trying to figure that out. Do I have meaning in a sense? Mm -hmm. You know, am I capable? How many kids do we have in fifth grade thinking, can I do sixth grade? Rather than, man, I am so pumped to be in sixth grade or I don't have to walk in a line anymore. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I get but to that's a pen. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I get a pen. Right. But, but instead it's, man, I, I'm worried about sixth grade. I don't know that I can do that. Man, I tell you that 
fifth graders need to be chomping at the bit to get to sixth grade. But we also see that at high school students. Mm -hmm. You know, the number of high school students I see as seniors that are scared half to death of college or the real world rather than chomping at the bit to get out. And, and you still see those, but it's a smaller pocket. You know, the junior that said, can, I, can this have been my senior year? I'm ready to go. You know, mm-hmm. that, that's what we really want. And, and then do I fit or belong? That's exactly the struggle today. Kids don't know where they fit or belong because they haven't learned how to participate in their family community, in their school community, in their larger community. You know, think about this. What, what type of citizen are our families sending to our schools and our churches? Are we sending good members? Well, the only way we can say we're sending good members is if we can first demonstrate that they're, they're a functional good member of our own family. You know, that's not, that, that, we don't see that as much today. That's a huge struggle. So I think you're exactly right. I think the, the kids that go through struggle begin to shape perspective and they know a lot more. Their identity is a lot more informed than those who don't go through struggle. Mm-hmm. So, so now to parents, this is uh, kind of summarizing, I guess, at this point that um, for parents, you're telling them you, you need to aim at building sturdy children, right? Not necessarily happy, but it's kind of like right. what you said that, well, C.S. Lewis once, once put it this way. I don't know if this is a direct quote. I think I'm pretty close that if you aim at heaven, you get earth thrown in. If you, aim, <laughs> you yeah, if you aim at earth, you get neither. Right. You, 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 you um, nailed it. That's exactly right. Yeah. yeah. Well, it's so funny. I, I, C.S. Lewis quote that, that I use with high schoolers is, uh, it relates to this, relates to how we react to tough things. It's the surely what a man does when he's caught off guard is, I think this is mere Christianity. Surely what a man does when he is caught off guard is the best evidence of what sort of man he is. And I use that with yeah. high school students. You know, th- when we're caught off guard, that's when we're jacked up emotionally. Mm-hmm. So think about how do we deal with life when our emotions really get stirred? That really tells us, are we sturdy or are we living by our emotions? Yeah. Yeah. That's good. Well, let's, let's look at one last question here. Sure. Um, the backing up to the bigger picture, we've talked about teachers, particularly parents. Um, so if it's true that struggles and challenges are, are good for us, then let's address really an issue that every teacher, every parent, every individual is going to face. If struggle and challenge is so good for us, why do we resist it so much? And then what do we do about it? Okay. I I will give you, I I think the simplest answer. And I I think every parent who ever hears this will agree. Um, When we allow our children to struggle or cause them to struggle, the the easiest answer is we don't like that. We don't like our children suffering. So the first thing, it's really two-part. The first thing is we have to understand uh, our children are rarely suffering in the world we live in today. Yet they will act like they're suffering. You know, it's much like a child who says, I want a cookie for dinner. And mom says, you can't have a cookie until after dinner. And the child throws a fit on the floor and is kicking, screaming, frothing because they want a cookie. And the mom says, I think there's something wrong with them. And I said, well, what would happen the moment you give them a cookie? Oh, they'd be fine. And I say, and? Oh, they realize, okay, there's really nothing wrong with them. They're really not suffering. They may be mad. They may be angry. Right. But the majority of us in this, uh, in this nation don't experience true suffering. 
So the first thing is, is parents, we've got to understand our children really, they may be having a hard time and I'm not in any way dismissing tough emotions, but, but they're not suffering. And so, but the second piece is it is difficult for us to let our children struggle, especially in some of the ways that I've talked about turning life over to them because it is uncomfortable for us. It takes longer. It's messier. You know, we have to be sacrificial and that's hard for us to do. You know, and I'll give you a simple example. If I'm going to teach my seven-year-old to cook breakfast, breakfast will become an hour and a half long. Yes. <laughs> yes right? <it> will. <laughs> if I'm going to teach my, uh, my son to mow the lawn the very first time, it's going to get remowed multiple times. Mm-hmm. You know, you go through the whole process. And now let's lay down and look across. Do you see all that standing up over there? You know, that. Yeah. So, so for us, it's hard on us. And that's where we as parents have really got to say, okay, wait a minute, what is my job? Because we, you know, and, and me included, we get consumed with so many other things in life that we really get away from a primary job description. Actually, it's the primary part of who God says our identity is. And that's a trainer of those who come behind us, a trainer of those who will replace us. And that is just hard because you know, we also like life to feel good. We also want things to be, uh, to be fun. And there's a huge part of that that's not fun. You know, holding a child accountable to uh, doing chores is not fun. Uh, and I th- so in my office, that is probably the, the two pieces. The first is that parents understand that their children really aren't suffering. They're struggling, but they're not suffering. And that that struggle is good. And the second is that parents really themselves struggle with the self-sacrificial role of what that training requires of us. Mm-hmm. And when parents get past that, it's amazing what can happen. I mean, it really is. And of course, what I joke with parents about, yeah, but if you're turning over life to them at home, just think about how many things you're not going to have to do now. <laughs> that's true. That's very right. true. Yeah. But, but that's, that's what I see with, with, with parents really getting stuck on it. Now, and as far as individuals, you know, it's, it's sometimes hard for us to, to cultivate the kind of discipline um, that you're describing here. Right. So right. Um, I think one final piece in all of this as both teachers, parents, whatever our role is in this. Mm-hmm. Um, and for a lot of our listeners, it's, it's both, especially those who are homeschooling. I mean, sure. You talk about <laughs> going through the fire all the time, right? Um, they don't really, they don't get away from it, but um, I think part of this too is that we have to we have to learn to embrace struggle ourselves, and that's sort of what you're right. describing is that we absolutely we we don't like to see our kids struggle, and so our tendency is to step in, but we've got to be willing to to struggle while watching them struggle, and we have to yeah, model I, the willingness to do that. I had a high schooler um, tell me just the other day after one of my talks to a group of upper school students. Um, and what she shared with me, she said, one of the, she said, this is so hard for me because I see my parents complain about everything. Mm. And, and that's really telling, you know, one of the questions I, I, one of the things I say to high schoolers and parents, I say, you know, to really think about how well we're doing with struggle. And I'll give you two things to think about. The first is this, the, the, the evidence that we're really living like children and not struggling well is complaining. And that just hits us all right between the eyes. Sure does. 
you know, and, and but but that is really it. Because when we complain, we are saying this thing is really a huge deal in my life. And when our children see us constantly complain, how can we look at them and say struggle's healthy for you and it's a good thing? Hmm. And, and that so we really have got to step back and take a look at that and say, my goodness, you know, what am I? What is the perspective that I'm selling in my own home? Uh, you know, am I getting angry because the coffee maker didn't work? Am I, you know, fired up because we're running a few minutes late and I'm asking and I'm acting like it's the end of the world? You know, again, how we manage our own emotional world with that is important. I tell parents all the time with, with children, this is the second thing, the way to look at it. I say, you know, when you're parenting, if you're going to pull this off, the first thing you have to do is reorder your own emotional world. And, and the example I give is this. I call it um, no parenting above a five. Think about a Richter scale for earthquakes. We have zero to ten. At, at one or two, we don't even know anything went on. We hear about it on the news. At a three or a four, we're thinking a big truck drove by. At a five, we think the truck hit the building. Parent pictures fall off the walls, and we wonder, oh, no, what is that? You know, we have an emotional Richter scale, and our Richter scale, once we get to that five, anything we do above it, we do damage. Because when our emotions pass our brain, our brain does not work real well. And so I tell parents all the time, you know, if you're going to begin in this journey and you get pushback with your kids, you can't engage their fussing, their grumbling, whatever, unless you're below a five. And, and this is where psychology really messes this up, especially with parents of young children. You know, psychology will tell you, you have to deal with everything immediately to get any result. Well, that's, it's just not true. You know, if it's a real problem, it will show up again. You'll have another bite at the apple. If it's real, I mean, you know, <laughs> yeah, you don't yeah. have to deal with everything immediately. The first thing is make sure you are not letting your emotional world run you. If you have to go away 10 times to be able to engage it where your emotions aren't running you, then you can deal with it appropriately. And so parents really have to look at that. We have to look, you know, is our general, our general demeanor of life, are we, are we operating, unfortunately, on, on the part of our brokenness that affects our brain? Are we operating on our negative confirmation bias, which means we see the negative so much more easily than the positive? And is that our commentary? You know, that's just complaining. Is our commentary all the little things that frustrate us or that aren't perfect? I mean, like, we, like life is ever going to be perfect. But is that our commentary? Is that the narrative we are filling the room with uh, in life? And then the second is... You know, am I allowing my emotional world, my emotional discord to drive what I do? And if we are, we really have got to say, wait, I can't do that anymore. I've got to, whether I have to walk away 40 times, I've got to walk away. I had one dad tell me, he said, yeah, he said, I realized I was mistaking that as energy to go parent. And I said, yeah, yeah, that's a mistake. That is not, but that's, but if you think about it, I'm fired up. Now I'm going to go parent. You know, I think about, I'll give you an example. I, um, I remember my daughter when she was younger, probably a young teenager, and I remember being mad at her about something and just lighting her up one time, you know, verbally, just going off on her. And then going into my room, going to bed, slowing my breathing down, everything's quiet. And out of the still darkness, I hear my wonderful wife's voice say, so you're feeling pretty good about yourself, aren't you? And that's the reminder of what did you just do? And so, I, you know, of course I had to go in and, and, and talk to my daughter and seek her forgiveness and, and deal with that issue. We all do that. Yeah. And we've got to get that emotion under control before we engage anything. Right. So, right. so the, the, the struggle has to start with us. Uh, has absolutely. To, yeah. Before we can teach our children and students to, to do the same. 
Yeah. Yeah. I, I have folks come in my office and most of the time they come in and the child is what we call the identified client, but really the child is the shill because who most of the time, the majority of work and change that needs to occur is with the parents. Yeah. Uh, and, and as the parents begin to live differently and do differently, it's amazing then what that generates downstream to their children. Yeah. Well, Keith, thank you so much. This, is, this has been wonderful. I appreciate you taking time out again to come and talk with us. Um, and so on behalf of all the listeners, thank you. Well, thank you. You're very welcome. Love, love speaking to you. Well, I am taking a load of lessons with me. This has been... Um, you know, some podcasts are encouraging and, and some are sort of like a roundhouse kick to the face. Uh, this one has been a bit of both. So uh, an encouraging roundhouse kick to the face. Thank you, Keith. <laughs> You're welcome. Thank you. <laughs> All right. I'm your host, Brian Phillips. Until next time, thanks for listening. And we'll talk to you again soon. When we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.